Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller, and we're getting ready to start the next 48 minutes of answering questions that you, the listeners, have submitted over the course of the last week. Every week, I scan through the lots and lots of questions that come in and just choose a few that we can discuss on here, hopefully those that have application value for all of us, no matter what our particular business or job or career is. That's the way we do it. Then they're 48 minutes because I've used a lot of the branding of 48 around here, 48 Days to the Work You Love, of course, being one of my primary books, 48days.net being the community, the growing community, now over 7,000 strong of people who have said, you know what, I've got an idea. I think I can put legs on this thing and make it a real business with real income. If you aren't part of that group yet, you can check that out. But there are a lot of things that are 48 around here. If you get a package from our office with any of our products, it comes with a little sticker on it that says, wait, before you open this package, Dan has a 48-second message for you. So that's a, let's see, that's our toll-free number. It's 888-48-DAYS-2, and you call that, and lots of people do, and you hear a short 48-second message message with me just congratulating you for being one of the smartest people on the face of the planet as a result of purchasing some of our products to get your life in order and actually create or find the work that is meaningful purposeful and work that you love and profitable i might add a lot of times people assume that well if you move toward the more you move toward work you love the more you are moving away from generating income which is ridiculous. There's not an inverse relationship between those two. In fact, it works the opposite. And trust me, I can attest to the fact that it's a whole lot easier to make money doing something you love than trying to do something that you hate. I had a lady this week, I I spoke at at a group and had a lady tell me that she has always believed that the more miserable you were, the more responsible you probably were being. How do you like that for a, a connection? My goodness, if, if we believed that relationship, the correlation there between misery and being responsible, that would be a horrible way to live our lives. And I certainly don't believe that as well. I don't believe that misery in any way connects to being responsible. In fact, I think it's irresponsible to think that we're burying God's greatest gifts gifts to us and doing something that doesn't bring joy and fulfillment to us and thinking that in doing that we're being responsible nope doesn't work that way well we're going to unpack a whole bunch of questions today and look at some of the issues that people are asking about as usual you know we've got questions about personal relationships we've got questions about reading material questions about time balance just all the things that seemingly uh kind of pervade whatever we do again it doesn't matter what kind of work you're involved in these questions have a relationship to the things that you are trying to deal with day by day as well people ask me a lot about seminars that i go to and books that i read i'm not real narrow in the kind of things that i'm drawn to or even in the kind of seminars that i go to I mean, I go to a lot of seminars that may not seem directly related to what i do as an author and speaker 
But I, if I just extract one great nugget from a day-long seminar, I think it was time well spent. I mean, I'm not looking to have something totally revolutionize my life, and I'm not looking for, you know, 20 principles that I'm going to start following next year. I'm just looking for a nugget or two, just here and there. It may be a quote that somebody shared. And so when I go, I go with a very open mind, a very non-judgmental agenda, and just truly believe that I'm going to pick up one or two nuggets in the course of the day, even if that means sitting through a lot of content that I don't find particularly interesting. But um, I, I just go with the mindset that I'm going to find something today that's going to be really beneficial to me. Well, let me go to the questions. This one comes from Joshua who says, thanks for being a father to the fatherless. All my life I've been looking for a father to teach me. I expect so much out of my bosses. No one seems to want to take our generation under their wing and mentor us. How would you suggest we find and pursue mentors truly willing to pour into hungry young entrepreneurs? Well, Joshua, thank you for that. That is an extreme compliment to say that I'm a father to the fatherless. This is a really tough issue. I mean, if you look back at the Old Testament, we have a very patriarchal system. The father was the head of the family. He was responsible for everybody in his downline. You know, everybody, children, daughters-in-law, sons-in-law, grandchildren, nieces, nephews. What I mean, there was a patriarch. Today, we've totally dismantled that. Look at the transient mobility of our culture today. I mean, people grow up somewhere, they move 2,000 miles away from mom and dad, aren't connected with their siblings. I mean, um, I mean, I'm an example of that. I mean, I don't live in the same state as my parents did. I don't live in the same state as any of my siblings. Um, don't have a lot of contact with my siblings for the most part. So we have this really fractured family system where nobody's responsible to a father anymore. What we've done is we've replaced the role of the father with big government, which is a pretty horrendous thought, but we really have. I mean, fathers were initially responsible for the well-being of everybody in their domain. I mean, that's why there's so much talk in the Bible about taking care of the widows and the orphans. I mean, that was a real serious responsibility. They weren't just on the street and looking to the government for welfare handout. That was a responsibility of the father in the family. Those were somebody's children, or even if it was a daughter-in-law of a son who died, it was still the father's responsibility. We've moved a long ways away from that, and I know that there's a whole lot of people out here who feel fatherless, not just in a business sense, but even beyond that. And I I have had the privilege of working with a lot of people over the years and probably providing some of that role, Um, and I I take that very seriously. And I think if you use a biblical model, I think we all need to have a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy in our lives. A Paul, somebody older, wiser to speak wisdom into us that we ought to listen to. Barnabas, somebody that kind of comes alongside where we link arms and say, what do you want to accomplish? How can I help you? And then a Timothy, somebody who is younger that we can help nurture and mentor along. Now, this is not an issue that has gone unnoticed in our culture. Let me give you some quick tips here, Joshua, that I think you can latch on to that'll help you. Donald Miller is an author. He wrote Blue Like Jazz and a couple other books. I was just at a conference of his recently in Portland, Oregon. But he has a new book out called Father Fiction. 
and it he he talks through the fact that he grew up without a father but he uses a lot of stories in there and i would encourage you to get this because it'll address what you're saying and when you frame what you're talking about father to the fatherless it implies a whole lot more than just a business mentor that you can learn from but father fiction is a, a recent book you can pick that up but in there i mean donald tells stories about a wildlife refuge in africa where there were a bunch of orphaned elephants so there are no mom and dad around orphan elephants well you know what happens the males become very aggressive and violent uh you think there's a parallel in the human condition in humanity when that happens yeah absolutely and when we look at the thousands and millions of young men growing up without a father it's really no surprise that there is such increased violence in those environments very sad but certainly true donald has started a project called the mentoring project now you can look this up the mentoring project he has a goal to have one million guys step up to the line to offer to be mentors to young men who do not have fathers one million and he also has a very explicit goal to reduce our prison population by 15 percent i mean there's an easy connection there it's easy to show that those in prison for the most part grew up without fathers i mean thus they did have violence uh, emerge in their communities in their environment very quickly very direct connection yes we need to address this problem but check out the mentoring project uh, john sowers is another gentleman he's also involved in the mentoring project he's got a book out a new book called the fatherless generation redeeming the story but if you go to the mentoringproject.org you'll find information about probably both of those books and that project as well let me give you a couple other books to help as well these are books i've had for years that address this issue very well and it and it takes the idea of mentoring which is you know, you're not, um, it's not just a process of coaching. It's not just a process of fathering. It certainly involves more than that, perhaps. But As Iron Sharpens Iron is one of the book titles. Howard and William Hendricks, A Father-Son. That's one I would recommend. Another one is titled Mentoring by Bob Beale. The third one in this line is The Fine Art of Mentoring that's by Ted Engstrom. Those three books are the best that I've found on the concept of mentoring and I think would help you a lot. Great question, tough issue, and I certainly hope that I take my opportunities uh, to mentor others seriously. Just had some time in Portland at a recent conference where I invited my two sons to come there with me. You know, my sons are grown guys. I mean, my, my sons are grown men in their own right. They're doing significant things in business around the world. But it's, it's really cool to get together with them, just as a dad and two sons, even though they're grown men at this point. And to not have wives or kids around, no other daily responsibilities, just to be walking the streets of a, 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 a city where you're not familiar late at night, looking for fun places to eat, connecting with people, going to events together. I mean, what a great experience. I mean, I love being a daddy. I love being a, a papa to grandkids, but I have loved the process of being a father to my own children at every stage. I mean, there were no terrible twos, trying threes, you know, ridiculous teenage years. I mean, all those things we were warned about. 
Joanna and I loved every stage of being parents to our kids. This question comes in, Dan, I currently hate my job. I feel sick from the walk from the car to the retail store I work in. I've started a website called MyUpsideDownLife.com. I've experienced some really hard times in life, and I want to help others. Can you review my site? Give me some input on what you think. This is my heart. Well, I did go to your, your website. I absolutely love your logo, My Upside Down Life. I mean, that is the coolest logo I've seen in a long, long time. Um, check it out, listeners. But now, as far as the site, I, I think you're right on to something. When you have something that you're so passionate about that strikes a chord with you, that's a great way to start your online presence. Add more content. I mean, just get aggressive about adding more content there. Even if it's other people's stories, other people's blogs, get more content there so there's more reason to hang around and then make it very easy for people to respond and get engaged. I mean, that's what builds a community. So ask questions that people can respond to. I mean, increase your own blogging. Blog on other people's sites that then link back to your own site. I mean, when I blog, I don't just write a blog. That's the end of it. When I blog, part of the process of finishing that process for me is to go comment on three or four other people's blogs. So you you connect in a community. This is not just one directional. I mean, I, I comment on lots of other people's blogs. So do that as you're writing content. Find other sites that have related content. Get involved in their communities. Comment there, and you'll start to build your own audience as well. But you're on the right track. and looks great. Ken says, Dan, I want to start a business taking photographs of children playing sports. I just bought a great digital camera, but I'm afraid to get started. Now, now check out this next sentence. Ken says, I guess I'm afraid of failure or success. Isn't that interesting? I, I, it's wise to recognize it may just as likely be one or the other. A lot of people say, well, gee, I'm really afraid of failure. A lot of people are afraid of success. I mean, we see time and time again that people sabotage their own opportunities for success. Failure is a pretty easy thing to live with. You don't have to make a lot of excuses, blah, blah, blah. You know, not a whole lot's expected of you if you're a failure, but boy, you be a success. Guess what? You're going to start having arrows coming your way. I mean, people are going to try to pull you down, down to their level. You're going to have criticism. You're going to have people pulling at you. Gee, you're so lucky. You know, why don't you give me some of what you have? I mean, success is a much more difficult thing to deal with than failure. So you're right. It may be success that is terrifying more so than failure. Now, what you're talking about taking photographs of children playing sports I mean there's not a lot of a a lot of threat in doing that if you can do that well and capture some images that really you know catch the kids at great moments I mean that's a a, a cool thing to focus on Ken says should I create a document of tasks to complete so I can track progression of what I need to do to get started I'm stumped yes do exactly that create a business plan A lot of people who are photographers never get out of the thinking that it's just a hobby. It's just a little sideline hobby. If something happens, good, that's fine. If somebody asks you to photograph a wedding or graduation, yeah, I'll do that. But you never get serious about really creating it as a business. Artists, photographers, a lot of creative people find themselves kind of trapped in this. So create a business plan. 
I mean, create a business plan just the same as if you were opening a bowling alley or starting a hardware store or going to open a restaurant. I mean, any business like that, create a business plan. Uh, we have free ones. There's, uh, hmm, wow, it's on my blog page. I'm not sure where it is since we've changed things around, but I'll make sure that it's there. But we have a, a free business plan that you can download and just fill it out. Should take you a couple hours, but see it as a serious business and then give yourself some timelines. Do financial projections. That's going to be part of a business plan so that 90 days from now, you're going to be making X number of dollars or that in January of 2011, you're going to generate $2,500 in income in this business and then back into what has to happen for that, in fact, to occur. But if you do that, you can walk through this sense of fear that you have, whatever's creating it, and put yourself on track to really ramp up your new business. John says, Dan, now this is really interesting too. This is one of those, again, it's going to take us in a psychological, philosophical direction. Dan, can you explain the difference between working hard and workaholism? Too many confuse the two and neglect their families in the Lord's Day rest and the quality of life because they live for their employers and their jobs. So many families and churches are hurt because of the workaholism in the culture. Yeah, you're right. We excuse workaholism in a way that we would never excuse another addiction, and yet they're very much the same. So somebody shows up and says, hey, I'm a crack addict, we're going to think, geez, what a loser. You know, or even if somebody says I'm an alcoholic, we think, well, gee, do something to take care of that. Don't just go around saying you're an alcoholic. But when it comes to work, and a workaholic, well, many of the psychological principles are exactly the same, we tend to glorify workaholism. I mean, I mean, think about it. When you get together, people want to brag about how busy they are, how much they worked, like it's a badge of honor to be exhausted and drained because it was work-focused. Gee, I'm just, I'm doing work. Isn't that an honorable thing? Well, work is a very honorable thing, but workaholism is not. I mean, you, we have to realize, I mean, any psychologist, psychiatrist will, will tell you that workaholism is probably masking fear, anxiety, low self-esteem. A lot of times it's a way to hide from relationship problems. I mean, even though we tend to give it kind of a positive spin, it really isn't. I mean, just as with addictions to alcohol, drugs, or gambling, I mean, with workaholic, there's usually a denial, destructive behavior that, you know, keeps them from confronting other areas in their life. I mean, a lot of workaholics end up with poor health. And again, even there, we tend to accept, we have kind of a societal acceptance of the health challenges that are a direct result of workaholism. This is a very negative cycle. No doubt about it. But it, but in our culture, there's, I think there's a book that's been written that, that talks about the respectable addiction, referring to workaholism. And, and we have gotten caught up in that. Now, there are other cultures where it seems to be even more obvious. I mean, there's a term for it in the Japanese work culture where people die at their desk, and it's a common occurrence because they are working so hard that they totally ignore reality and the other needs of a physical body 
and an, a healthy emotional mind. I mean, I hope we aren't going that far, but it can go there if, if you aren't careful. Again, this obsession with work, where it becomes all occupying, I mean, where you, and here's how you can tell the difference between working hard. And I have to be careful here because if somebody tracked me for a week, they would probably accuse me of being a workaholic. I mean, I, I work a lot of hours in things that other people would view as work. But when you think about what I do that I frame as work, part of that time may be going for a walk on the nature trails on our property here or, or just sitting in my chair thinking or reading the current issue of a magazine. I mean, th- those things are all still within the frame of work, but, you know, I'm not pounding you know, nails into railroad ties or doing something like that that may be a more obvious connection to work. But when you consider the time that I spend reading, writing, speaking, consulting, coaching, I mean, I do spend a lot of time in that. But I'm also very aware of making deposits of success in other critical areas of my life. If I know that my physical health is suffering, if I know that my relationship with my wife is strained, you know, if I see that I am off track spiritually and emotionally, I mean, if I have not done anything to connect with other people for a week, I mean, uh, there are some real red flags that should be easily recognizable by myself or others around me that I have gotten out of balance. So in as much as I'm not one to just try to find equilibrium or balance in every area because that means different things to different people. People would look at my life and think that I'm very unbalanced in things that are just play. I mean, I don't fish, I don't golf, I don't hunt, I don't go to sporting events, I don't watch TV. You know, so people would think, well, I'm really unbalanced in that area. Well, yeah, I am. But to me, those things. Now, this is just me. Believe me, I don't point fingers at anybody else. That's why it's so individualized. But for me, those things don't hold enough, a high enough value or even an enjoyment to invest time in those. And so while other people are doing those, yeah, I am doing things that may look like work. Now, the other thing is, Joanna and I are by ourselves. All of our children are grown adults and on their own. So we don't have the same daily responsibilities of parenting that we did 20 years ago. That allows me a lot more discretionary time that I can devote to work. So yes, there is a difference between working hard and being a workaholic. If you find that you're sacrificing success in other areas of your life, then you may be a workaholic. Watch out, make the adjustments. Great question and a critical distinction. You can put in a lot of time working in work that you love, and I certainly do that. I don't feel guilty about it or apologize for it. But I, I certainly hope that I am not a workaholic. And, and I would have other people around me who would confront me if, in fact, that were true. Meaning that with workaholic, workaholism, it is an addiction. That there are all those negative trends that would be true just the same as if I were addicted to, to drugs or gambling or something else. Sarah says, the jobs I'm passionate about I cannot get because I don't meet the requirements according to what's posted on job sites. The jobs I can get, I do not love. Do I need to go back to school? Or maybe I should go at this another way to get these jobs. What ways? 
Wow. Great question. I love this question. Jobs I'm passionate about I can't get because I don't meet the requirements according to what is posted on job sites. The jobs I can get I do not love. All right, let's let's start with that and then I'll address a couple other things as well. Sarah, if you are passionate about something, ignore the requirements. Show yourself as a person they need for the job. I mean, this happens time and time again. A company listing requirements is simply a way for them to screen so they get 200 candidates instead of 1,000. I mean, that's all that it is. So they put things in there. Now, how many, I mean, my friend Pierce Mars, we did a teleseminar last night. Pierce says every job that he's ever gotten required a college degree, which he does not have. Every job he's ever gotten listed that they required a college degree. He's great at connecting with people. He's great at relationship, customer service oriented selling. He gets results. What company would not want to have him on board? He's got a real deep, engaging voice. He's extremely gracious, southern gentleman. I mean, what company would not want to have him on board? The same is true for you. People are not going to hire you based on the degrees and technical skills that you have. They're going to hire you based on the fact that they like you. They want to have you around. They want to have you as part of the team. You convince them that you are somebody they want to have on their team. Those requirements are going to fade off in the distance. Happens every day, thousands of times every day. So if you know what you're passionate about, then I would encourage you, just do that. I mean, this is not a matter of, do you need to go back to school? Now, you haven't given specifics here. Obviously, if you want a job as a brain surgeon and you're trying to get that, but nobody will hire you because you don't have the requirements, that being a medical degree, that that's pretty clear uh, stopper there. That's not going to happen. But I'm assuming you're just talking about, you know, somebody needs a graphic designer or customer service relationship person or a manager for the Taco Bell and they say they need a a college degree. I mean, those things are violated every day. I mean, violated in a positive term there. I mean, they simply go with the person that they want regardless of what those requirements said were required. Move forward with that. Aaron says, when are you going to talk about Seth Godin's new book, Lynchpin? It has a lot of the same concepts that you have. I think the ideas he lays out are really game-changing. Have you read it? If so, I would really like to hear what you think about it. Well, Aaron, you, you must be a relatively new listener because there's hardly a week that goes by that I don't mention Seth Godin and um, all of his books, Lynchpin. I mean, I'm a major fan of Lynchpin. I took my Wednesday morning group of guys through that book and we spent about, we spent about eight months going through that book. When Seth announced that he was going to, uh, he encouraged people to do meetups, just means people around the world to do meetups. There was a young lady here in the Nashville area that said she'd coordinate it, and I told her if she wanted to have it down here at our sanctuary, she could do that. We had the second largest group in the world that met for one of the linchpin meetups. The only larger one was in London, but uh, we had one here, and we had about, I think, about 80 people out here for that. So I'm very familiar with the book. Yes, certainly I did read it. Big fan of it. Yeah, that was back on June 14th of this year that we had the meetup out here. In Lynchpin, let me, let me just pull a little clip here real quick 
because it addresses even what we were just talking about, Sarah's question about getting a job that she's not qualified for. Seth says, if you don't have a resume, now, now Lynchpin, if you're not familiar with it, it's how to make yourself indispensable. I mean, that's a good synopsis right there. How to make yourself indispensable. It's not enough anymore to just have degrees and credentials and hope somebody gives you a job and then show up eight to five, do what's expected and go home. I mean, those days are over. You have to do something remarkable. Seth says, if you don't have a resume, what do you have? How about, because he's really saying a resume is old hat. You know, get, get over the idea of having a resume. I mean, any company that has a position open is going to you know, get 200 resumes and they're going to have 199 people who are more qualified than you and have better work experience than you. So what? You can get the position if you know how to be indispensable and how to let them know you're indispensable. So Seth says, if you don't have a resume, what do you have? How about three extraordinary letters of recommendation from people the employer knows or respects? Or how about a sophisticated project an employer can see or touch? Or how about a reputation that precedes you? Or a blog that is so compelling and insightful that they have no choice but to follow up? I mean, there's, there's a, another, in, in the book, The Art of Nonconformity, uh, Chris talks in there, that's a new book and another book that I recommend, but he talks about a gal that he knows who, when she was looking for a job, instead of looking for who would hire her, she interviewed prospective bosses. She created a website and put it out there. So she was interviewing prospective bosses. Tell you what, I think I can find that here real quick. I'll give you the where you can go to find that it's uh, her name was Susan and it's Susan hires a boss.com. Now what she did, she just decided she was going to interview bosses. She was going to interview multiple candidates and finally extend a formal offer with terms and conditions to the company she liked best. Now she got offers right there in Dallas, but she also received Offers from companies in Boston, San Francisco, Toronto, Nashville, Austin, Chicago, and New York. And the the position she took came from a company that wasn't even looking for somebody, but they were so blown away by her process of interviewing them as a prospective place to work that they created a position for. Now, that's what you've got to do in today's environment. Make yourself stand out. Now, I got kind of carried away in my response to do I know about linchpins. But yeah, linchpin's a great book to read to figure out how to make yourself indispensable, how to make yourself somebody that people want to have on board, even if you don't have a resume that sings and whistles better than anybody else. Big deal. All right, Rob says, Dan, can you elaborate more about how you started selling your 48 Days to the Work You Love in a three-ring binder book on your own? I believe you said it started with a Sunday school class and expanded. Was it basically a word-of-mouth marketing of the material? Class members told others and it just spread. Did you begin charging for the class as well as the book? I know you said you had sales of over $2 million. That's amazing, very inspiring. I wonder why go with traditional publisher if one could keep more of the profit by going solo. Well, you've got some great questions in here, and I hope that this helps some of you who are developing materials on your own. So I'll just answer them real briefly, just right through as you ask them. Yes, 48 Days to the Work You Love just did start as a, an extension of a Sunday school class. 
that's where the material was being developed. That's where I was working with people who are going through the inevitable, relentless transitions that come along. And it was in response to their request for material that they could give to other people that I put together the first form of what is now 48 Days to the Work You Love. And that was just in a simple spiral notebook uh, that we'd get done at Kinko's. Had a hardcover stock cover. It was very simply done, very rudimentary. But people started asking for that. Then I put it in a three-ring binder. We had a couple little cassettes lick and stick the cassette wells in the inside cover and put two cassettes in there so we didn't like that for a couple years then went to cds but yeah i'd sold a whole lot of those you know sold well over two million dollars worth of that product when i did that we i did not depend just on word of mouth i mean this was back this was back in 96 97 but uh, we didn't have the kind of functionality that we have today on the internet. But I had a very simple website. We made it available there. I understood how to get you know, the search engines to come and find you. So I did things even back then because I just was learning how to market on the internet. So we got a lot of traction because of that. And those people expanded our center of influence beyond just the people in the Sunday school class to tell others. So it grew very quickly. I did not begin charging for the class. The class, I continued to give free handouts to the class as I was developing the material. Always did that. I never charged in a Sunday school class for doing that. Now, there's really, Rob has a related question here. That, that seems to be related to this, where he goes on and says that he wants to give a class on a family topic. Uh, he has some reservations about how to approach a church to ask for permission to, for them to give him space and then to present, advertise for his class and charge people to come. You've touched on some of the real issues that we are dealing with with a 48-day seminar as it is now. And as much as I always taught Sunday school class for free, then did a an evening seminar for eight years as a community outreach of that church on an ongoing basis, which were really the 48 days principles never charge for that. You know, now we have the 48 days put together as a seminar where people do pay to come to that, but to think that you can, and this is, this is real instructional. I think it's in terms of positioning yourself as a presenter, we've had a whole lot of people come to our coaching with excellence event that we do here about three or four times a year at the sanctuary where we help them build their coaching practice and show them how to make that extremely profitable. And one of the ways to do that is to use a 48 days to the work you love seminar as a feeder, because if you do that, well, individual participants are going to be raising their hands saying, will you work with just me and helping me through this transition I'm going through. So it allows you to build your coaching practice as a result. However, to think that you can identify 10 churches in your town and you're going to go do 48 days to the work you'll have seminars there isn't going to work. I mean, that's not a model that I encourage at all. If you think about it, think about your own church. I means the person that leads a seminar there, and if it deals with careers or finances or parenting or abuse or addictions or whatever it is, it's going to be somebody from that church. It's going to be extremely rare to have somebody from outside, even if they're an upstanding citizen in the community, somebody from outside the church to come in and do a seminar. And especially if it's something where there is a fee for doing the seminar. That just doesn't 
doesn't work. I mean, I'd love for that to be a possibility. We've got some great seminar leaders, and I'd love to have them doing this in 10, 20 churches in their hometown. It just doesn't work that way. So if you're going to do a seminar and charge for it in a church, it better be your own church, and chances of you ever doing that in a church other than your own are extremely slim. Now, can you take a great seminar on family issues or parenting or work you love or finances and do it as a community presentation and draw people from churches to that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I did that a lot where I would promote the 48 Days to the Work You Love seminar or 48 Days to Creative Income, which is what I, what the content now is kind of encapsulated in No More Dreaded Mondays, but I used to do that seminar. We would do that, and I'd always have 100, 110 people show up. We had a hotel that we used, their conference room for that back in those days. We would draw a lot of people. We'd promote it to churches, and they'd come, but it's just a different feel. There's more acceptance of coming to an outside seminar held at a hotel and expecting that they're going to pay for it, whereas if it's conducted in the church, it just doesn't work well at all. Here's another question, Dan. Since you've been to many seminars, I was wondering what makes you think what you paid for was worth it after hearing a presentation. What points do you think need to be covered, addressed in a presentation to make the attendees think it was worth it, have them walking away feeling satisfied? Hmm, okay. Well, I, I mentioned at the top of the podcast today that I go to a lot of seminars, and I do. I mean, I was just tallying up. In the month of October, I am either you know, presenting or attending five workshops and seminars in the month of October. I've got a, that, That's pretty uh, unusual. I mean, usually it's not that many, but I go to a lot of seminars. I mean, I just went to a Living a Better Story seminar in Portland, Oregon. I'm doing a seminar here this week on Living, Loving, Working. Next week, I'll be at Kent Julian's Speakers Boot Camp down in Atlanta, and I'm spending a couple days there just absorbing the material. Yeah, I'm doing a little presentation, but it's a small part of me being there for a couple days to learn about being a better speaker. Then right after that, I'm going to a professional presenter's summit put on by Ken Davis, who's a great presenter, hilarious guy, but it's uh, it brings together you know people who are presenting as part of their business model and how to do that effectively. Then I'm going to uh, Kevin, my son's Free Agent Academy seminar workshop three days out in Woodland Park, Colorado, uh, the last week of this month. So I've got a whole bunch of them put together. Now, when I go to a seminar, the one I just went to in Portland, Oregon, I knew a little bit about it. Justin Lucas Savage, one of our other coaches over North Carolina, had brought it to my attention, asked me if I'd want to go because we'd get a few people together and get a group rate, which we did. But I went to that without knowing much about it. And I did not have a lot of expectations that, ooh, I better hear these things and get these points or get something that's going to change my life or I'm going to be upset about paying $250 to go to the seminar plus airfare, hotel, and all that. No, I didn't go with that. I mean, I already told you I, I invited my two sons and my brother to join me there. I was looking forward to the time the four Miller boys were going to have together. That was going to be 90% of my expectation was just in the time the four of us would have together. Now, the workshop was great. 
But did it have some big transforming effect in my life? Nah, it was great stuff on how to write your own personal life story. See your life as a movie where you can write the script in advance, then live it out. To see things that happen to you as inciting incidents, just something happened. So how is that going to play out as a scene in the movie of your life? The importance of recognizing everything is a scene from the movie of your life. So how you talk to your husband, or your wife this morning, that's a scene. That's a permanent scene in the movie of your life. Your behavior at lunch today is going to be another scene in the movie of your life. So it was a fun thing, but I go to a lot of seminars where I don't get a whole lot out of them. But again, my expectation is I'm going to find one thing. I mean, I've never in my life asked for money back from a seminar. I've gone to seminars on real estate and investing, things that are not real key areas of interest for me at all. But I know that the principles of success are very transferable. So if I go to a real estate seminar, I may get one idea about success. It may have been a quotation from somebody 200 years ago, and I come away with that one thing. But I know that I'm going to always come away with one or two things that are really pertinent ideas that I can absorb that are going to help me live a better story in my own life. So that's the way that I do that. Now, I'm very aware of that when I do presentations as well. I try to pack a lot into presentations. I prepare for presentations. When I speak, I take that time very seriously. When I speak, I show up early. I mingle in the crowd. I get a sense of who's there, why they're there, what they're expecting. I mean, I want that to be, I don't go in with some canned speech and boom, you get what you get regardless. Now, obviously I have notes in advance, but I personalize it. And during the course of the the presentation, I can say, you know, earlier tonight I was talking to John, who's sitting out here in the third row. You know, I bring them into it, make them a part of it so they feel engaged in what's going on rather than just sitting there like dummies listening to something that was probably presented in exactly the same way a hundred times again. I mean, I usually package presentations that I do where people get a copy of one of my books so that afterwards, then, I mean, there are long lines for me to sign the book and it gives me a chance to engage with people, hear about their own stories and how they related to what I just presented. So this is a real give and take process. I mean, I don't feel, uh, I don't feel in any way that I am golly, that I'm somehow being snubbed if I'm just a participant. As a matter of fact, I was recently asked to go to a conference and they asked me if I would do a presentation there just as a tag on to the conference. I said, no, I'd really rather not. I'd rather just come sit in the back row anonymously and just enjoy the presentation. Just be, you know, just be a participant. I mean, I enjoy that process. I want there to be times when I am the student, believe me, uh, it's dangerous to think that I always have to be on stage and be in the presenter. And I would encourage you to view it in the same way. Well, let me move on. Paul says, Paul from Kansas City says, Dan, I recently started reading your book after 13 years in the same career where I'm no longer happy. Don't enjoy the challenge of just surviving. I feel there's more to life than this. I'm on day 11 of the book. And my question is, is it too early to start making the transition to work I love? Thanks, Paul. No, absolutely not. If you're on day 11 of the 48 days, you need to be thinking about what is a transition to work you love going to look like. Absolutely. Be planning, dreaming, getting excited about it. Be visualizing exactly what that's going to be. Here's a related question. Joe from Waco says, how do you decide when enough is enough? I dislike my job immensely, but stay in it because it pays well and takes care of the household. I'm 58. 
the day that you realize your job is that you dislike your job immensely, that's the day to start creating a transition. I mean, that is when enough is enough. If you ever get to the point when you decide you dislike your job immensely, make a transition. And when you say it pays well, the implication is that if you changed, you would have to compromise what you're being paid now. Why would you think that? You're a different person now than you were 10 years ago, perhaps, when you took this job. You ought to have more to offer, be more valuable to another company. So do a job search. It doesn't need to threaten anything you have in place now. You don't need to sabotage that. Don't burn any bridges. But do a job search. You'll find out what is your market value. You may be surprised at the opportunities that you get that would double your income. So don't think less when change occurs, whether it is superimposed or self-chosen. The fact that you're 58, gee, part of the implication of your question seems to imply, okay, I'm 58, I probably ought to just hang on to this crappy job that I have till I retire. Well, that's a pretty scary thought as well. I mean, when are you going to retire? We see a lot of people are working till they're 68. Let's just, let's just take it to 68. That's going to be 10 years. Now, certainly there are a lot of people that work well into their 70s and beyond that, but let's just take it 10 years. Let's assume that you're going to work till you're 68. 10 years in a job that you immensely dislike? You're going to die of a heart attack. You're going to die of something other than old age if you try to make yourself stay in a job for 10 more years that you immensely dislike. Again, now I really think 48 days is adequate time to assess where you are, identify your options, get the advice and opinion of other people, choose the best alternative and act. I mean, that's a system to go through. And I think if you drag it out longer than 48 days, you're going to exacerbate all kinds of negative symptoms in your life that go beyond just work. Okay, man, let me grab a couple more here. We're going to have to wrap up. Keith says, when was the moment that you decided in your life to have no more Mondays? When was the moment that I decided that? You know, Keith, it wasn't anything recent. I think I was about 12 or 13 years old. I mean, I really was. When I got a hold of it as a 13-year-old kid, Earl Nightingale's The Strangest Secret, and it says we become what we think about, I thought, you know what? I don't have to put, I don't have to sling hay bales in the hot Ohio summer sun all my life. I really do have options. It put me in the driver's seat in terms of my thinking at that point where I knew I would never again be able to point a finger of blame at somebody for what my life turned out to be. I was 13 years old when I had that moment where I decided not to have any no more Mondays. Jennifer says, I'm 29 years old. I'm close to $100,000 in student loan debt, but I have a bachelor's in labor and industrial relations. It's frustrating when you want to pay your loans, but the jobs are not available. What can I do to create income? Well, Jennifer, for one thing, disregard the fact that you have a BA in labor and industrial relations. What is it that you really love to do? What is it you're passionate about? I mean, keep in mind that 10 years after graduation, 80% of college graduates are doing something totally unrelated to their college major. So don't get hung up in that in limiting you. If there aren't jobs in that that give you reasonable income and fulfillment, and what you're doing, just move on to something else. I mean, all that does is just show that you had the discipline to get a bachelor's degree. Fantastic. Congratulations. Now figure out what you really want to do and do it with excellence. And the money ought to come to you in leaps and bounds. Wow. 
Let me do one one more quick one. Sutton says, I've heard you talk a lot about reading and have st- started reading daily. All right, good. On a recent podcast, you mentioned that you read A Man's Search for Meaning every six months. Are there other books you read every six months? You know, there, there are, I mean, again, I, I read a lot of books. I just put number 50 on my list this morning and we're in the first week of October. So, you know, I'll, I'll read well over 60 books this year. I mean, I, I love to read and I already shared. I consider that part of my recreation, leisure, and work. It all blends together. I just enjoy reading, so I read a lot of great books. There are there's some books that I think are re, worth re, rereading frequently, and one of those is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Another one is going to be David Schwartz's book, The Magic of Thinking Big. There are a lot of other books that I reference repeatedly. Jack Canfield's Success Principles, Chris Brogan's Trust Agents, a more recent one. I mean, those are books that perhaps I would not go back and read cover to cover. But Man's Search for Meaning and The Magic of Thinking Big are two that I do read at least every six months. Great question. Thanks for your input. Well, again, uh, check us out. Check out the live events coming up. I have the pleasure of meeting people repeatedly. It's amazing how many people I, I meet in various locations where I see them at seminars that I'm attending. They come to places that I'm speaking. They come to live events here at the sanctuary. I see them at you know restaurants around the around the country. Uh, just uh, I love the connections that uh, my work has allowed me to make over the years of people who I know are on the same path that I am, even if our paths cross just intermittently along the way. But I know that you are one of those people who is out here, and you're figuring this whole thing out. You're figuring out how to live a life that matters, how to create a movie of your life that tells a story where people are going to, man, when they see the credits roll at the end of your life, they see the credits roll in your movie, they're going to smack themselves in the head and say, oh my gosh, that was awesome. That's the kind of story I want to leave behind. I know you do too. Congratulations on being part of our 48 Days community as we are together finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, fulfilling, and profitable. Have a great week.